spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, Episode Zero. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we'll be introducing ourselves in this very new, very exciting show. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to this new show for the Archaeology Podcast Network. First, we're going to introduce ourselves and let you know why we're qualified to do a show like this, and then we'll uh, we'll get to the purpose of the show. First off, April, how's it going? It's going really well. Nice, nice. Well, I'll start with mine because I think I think most people that are probably listening to this found out about this show by listening to another Archaeology Podcast Network show because you know we we uh, fully endorse nepotism and advertising on other shows and stuff like that. So. Um, so most people probably know who I am, but I'm the founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network and the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And I also do profiles in CRM, the Archaeotech Podcast, and uh, I think a couple others, but I can't remember. Anyway, I and I, ed- I edit most of the shows, at least uh, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, we'll have found an editor. That's kind of our goal right now. That's our, our big push. But um, anyway, I've been wanting to start um, a show like this for a long time, and we'll get into why uh, a little later on. But uh uh, a, a little bit more about me. I've got a master's degree in called, uh, archaeological resource management from the University of Georgia, and I own a CRM firm called DigTech LLC out here in Reno, Nevada. So, April, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right, deal. So, I'm April Camp Whitaker, and I'm actually a graduate student at Arizona State University. And I met Chris this summer, and he lured me in to this <laughs> show uh, with promises of fame and fortune that you, you know, get from archaeology podcasts. Um, <laughs> No, I'm really excited to be doing this. I have a background that ranges from the American Southwest, prehistoric Southwest, and now I work more in the historic time period. But I've worked in museums and CRM and academic archaeology and sort of dabbled in anything I can think of. Um, So it's fun to have a chance to sort of talk about all of that and share these really diverse interests that I've developed over the years. Um, with hopefully an interested audience. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you've done what what I always harp on in the CRM Archaeology Podcast, which is diversify. If you're only good at one thing or you're only interested in one thing, then you're not going to have a lot of opportunity in archaeology, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also talk about a little bit as academic intellectual ADHD, mm-hmm. uh, where there's just too many things that you would like to learn about and understand and know um, and the only way to find out is just to try doing them and experiment and see what you end up really, really liking and then try to stick with that a little bit more coherently. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about what we want this show to be. Um, and this may be a, a little shorter episode, but this is our episode zero. So um, if you're listening to this, keep listening when the show ends because episode one is right around the corner. Um, we, it should be right behind this one if you downloaded this episode. So 
this is just kind of the setup episode to let you guys know who we are and and what's going on here and and, and why we're doing this. But um, you know, this the idea for doing this show. I mean, I've I've wanted to do a show like this kind of since I started podcasting. I started the CRM Archaeology podcast almost. Uh, God, I think it'll be four years ago in uh, January. Well, yeah, because we're hitting our episode 100, I think, right before Christmas uh, on the schedule. And um, so, yeah, I think it's been about uh, four years. But anyway, I've always wanted to do just like a general archaeology show. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is there's so many topics that just that just don't fit into the other shows that we have. Right. And, and I want to be able to talk about everything from from actual archaeological related topics but then getting into like some you know evolutionary anthropology and and uh, a lot of different things that are in the news you know if somebody finds a new uh, a new hominid or something like that I want to be able to get them on and talk to them about you know about that on this show and and who knows uh, I'd love to split off into you know a more evolutionary anthropology type show you know in the future but for now, that kind of stuff is going to be here, um, and and we hope to talk about this stuff in, I guess, I guess more generic terms, so that pretty much anyone can understand it. Um, and of course, taking questions uh, also through our email will will help us sort of clarify what we what we don't explain very well. So, um, April, what are your thoughts on 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 how you think this show should progress, and and and, and what types of interviews we should do? Well, I was really excited about the idea that we could create a podcast that was talking about archaeology at a level that both appealed to practitioners, but also might be more accessible to people who are just interested in understanding what is archaeology, what is going on in the field, um, and don't necessarily have the time to control through all of the literature that's coming out. So we get to have fun and we get to we get to keep up on what's happening, the most recent, most exciting things. But we're finding ways of sharing them both with the academic CRM practicing archaeological audience, but then in a way that hopefully is really com- understandable to mm-hmm. sort of the lay audience too, because that's always been my interest in archaeology is how do we take all this really cool complex stuff that we publish in really boring formats and make it really exciting to people? Um, and I think we have the opportunity to do that with this podcast. Yeah, and that's. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really good point because I, I know one of my um, one of my focuses in in the podcast realm has been to kind of do the other half of archaeology, uh, especially in CRM archaeology, contract archaeology, where I work. It's a really dark black hole of data, right? I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you do stuff, you do really cool things, or you do really boring things. It doesn't matter, but you do things and you create reports, and those reports are then either buried in a client's. Uh, you know, file cabinet because it's on private land and, and they own pretty much everything you just produced for them. Or it's buried almost equally as bad uh, in a in a BLM file cabinet that's behind six layers of security and you need a degree and all kinds of stuff um, just to get, uh, even if you have a degree, you still in Nevada need to be permitted, which means you need to have experience in different districts to even be able to walk into that room and, and open those file cabinets. And to me, while I understand why that happens, um, I get it. Uh, it always seemed a little wrong to me, and we, I figured we need to not take that system away, but figure out how to how to get some of that data, have some of those data from those reports out to the public. Because quite frankly, when you say BLM, that's Bureau of Land Management, and it's public land, and the public paid for all this, and it's the public's reports, and yet the public doesn't get to see any of the results of the information. So... 
it's kind of a it's kind of been an all or nothing thing with CRM. Um, you know where where because we have coordinates and locational data in the report, we just reject the entire report, so you can't see anything. But really, the the interpretation section I feel like should be published on a website somewhere, so uh, so the public can see that information and what was you know what did we do, what did we find. And what was our interpretation of those results? You can take out all the other site data. You can take out the locations. You can you can say it was in a certain county, maybe, but you know, take out references to landmarks and things like that because we really don't want people going in and looting sites. I understand that we don't want them to go damage sites or anything like that, even if they damage them accidentally because they're just interested in walking around um, Pokemon style. Maybe there's a Poke Stop there or something. God damn it. Anyway, um, <laughs> so so yeah, I, I mean, I know. I know on the academic side, April, you guys are are very interested and used to interacting with the public, like the um, like the project you worked on this summer. I mean, you guys had all kinds of public outreach days where where you got to you got to sort of disseminate information you were collecting. I mean, that summer, right? Yeah. So I've been involved in the University of Denver Amachi project uh, at a World War II Japanese internment camp for three summers now, and it's really focused because we have a living community of people who lived there or are descendants, and we have a really tightly knit local community. We do a lot of public outreach, and this is a growing trend in academic archaeology, in part because a lot of granting foundations now want to see that you're doing some kind of public good, some kind of public benefit. Um, and there's just an understanding, I think, that's been increasing recently, that if the public doesn't know what we do, they don't care about what they do. we do, mm -hmm. and they don't want to give us money to do what we do, um, which obviously we need to address. But I think there's still a lot of issues um, that are kind of rolled into academic archaeology. Well, one, while we're starting to incorporate public outreach in a lot of our programs, we're still not very rigorously trained in most academic programs on how to do public outreach, how to write for a general public, how to talk to a general public, how to create integrative environments where the public really is welcome, they really are involved, and it's not just sort of the typical archaeology festival where people come out and watch you dig and maybe stick a trowel in the ground and sort some artifacts, uh -huh. but it's something much more holistically engaging. Um, and I think it doesn't help that a lot of the things we publish are published in academic journals um, and they're, they're kind of jargon heavy. And, you know, we've created an academic structure where you're expected to sound really um, intelligent and engaged with the theoretical literature, but it means that all these really interesting detailed results that we're producing are then written up in a manner that's not very approachable to people outside of the academic community in many ways, um, or the CRM archaeologist community. And, you know, I think it's kind of a fun conundrum for us to figure out how do we translate all of that? Because when you talk to academic archaeologists or any archaeologist about the things they're doing, verbally we're really engaging because we're really excited about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but then we write it all down and it becomes kind of dry a lot of times because it's hard to translate that excitement. Um, and the weird fun facts that are what makes the research interesting into a way that's part of a report or part of an academic article, um, or a conference presentation. And so I think creating outlets for us to talk about our research that let kind of the humanistic side of it come out are really fun and interesting and that's what pulls people in and gets them really engaged in archaeology mm -hmm. yeah and along those lines is uh is education you know they get educated along the way in uh in not just 
not just the culture or history of, of whatever, whatever, you know, um, people that you're investigating with your archaeology, but also about archaeology itself. And that's a huge problem in, um, I would say it's a huge problem in just CRM. It's a huge problem everywhere, but um, in CRM in particular, because everything seems so secretive, um, you know, you get you get those advocational archaeologists or even people that are just interested in, um, you know, we call them arrowhead hunters out here in Nevada. You know, they're just interested in going and finding more arrowheads because guess what? They've been doing that since the 60s when they were 10. And uh, and because they could go out in their backyard and collect whatever they wanted and no nobody told them, why they shouldn't do that. Um, I've got a, in fact, I, I just got another email on this, but I've got a blog post um, on my Random Acts of Science blog, and we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, it's a post number 172 called An Open Letter to Arrowhead Hunters. And I can't remember why I wrote this. It was back in April of 2013. But I'm starting to get a little more traction on this and and actually some more comments. There's 12 comments on this blog post uh, right now, and most of the comments are from... Uh, are from people telling me that I'm pretty much full of it and that, uh, <laughs> and that, you know, they should be able to, it's on public land, it's public stuff. You know, if it's on public land and it's an arrowhead, that means it's a public arrowhead and they can go out and pick it up whatever they want. And the general consensus seems to be that, uh, just one little arrowhead isn't going to matter. You know, they can pick that up, put it in their pocket, take it home and appreciate it and show their friends do whatever they want with. But if, but I had this one guy say, well, if I find a bunch of them, I'm not going to pick those up. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe tell somebody about it. And I was like, there's no, there's no difference, right? There's no, first off, it's not yours to pick up. That sort of education right there is the, the mental flip that needs to happen with people is it's not yours. It's actually somebody else's, you know, it's uh the, whatever native American group was there, it's their stuff, right? Well, and it's the public's, so by picking right. it up, he moves it from the public domain into the private domain, which I mm-hmm. think is an interesting way of thinking about it that they're not really necessarily engaging with is, yeah, it's on public land. So it is public property, but that means it should be available to everyone to yeah. see and find. And the minute you move it, you take it, you break that cycle and well, it's no it, longer available to everyone. And that's why it's something like a $50,000 fine if you actually get caught doing that. So. Yeah. You know the the ARPA violations for that are are pretty severe, and people have, you know, people have got people have not not many times, but people have definitely been taken down for larger um, larger rings of, of people. These are generally for people who go out and collect artifacts for selling them. Um, right. Yeah, but it's not it's not really any different if you go out and collect artifacts just for quote unquote appreciating them because you're you're taking it out of its context and even if you take that that's that's the other conceptual flip i think that people need to have like let's say at amache you guys find a um a sake still component you know something like that you take that off of amache and it's just it's really just another sake still piece you know or whatever it is it's just another button it's just another bottle that you can find really kind of anywhere but in the context of amache it means so much more you know, if somebody were to pull that off of there and then just bring that to you at your office at the university and say, hey, look what I found without any other information, you're like, well, that's great. You know, it's it's old. Sure, that's neat. But uh, where'd you find it? Where was it sitting? What context was it sitting in? And if we don't know that information, then it really detracts from from the rest of the the story behind that artifact. So, yeah, I'm sure you guys see that all the time, especially down there with so many artifacts on that site. Yeah. And then you also end up in, with the Southwest and almost anywhere. And then you end up with fabulous teaching collections because right. 
you can't use them for data and analysis anymore. All mm-hmm. you can do is use them to try to educate the public about why not to handle these things, why not to pick <laughs> them up. Um, so it's kind of an interesting little cycle there. Yeah. Yeah. I've got actually sitting next to me a shelf of uh, a shelf that's got some old bottles on it, some old insulators um, and uh, a couple projectile points, some pottery shirts and all that stuff was given to me by uh, by people that just wanted me to have it, you know, they said, Oh, I had this since I was a kid, or I've had this, you know, you know, maybe you can use it, but you're right. I have no idea where any of that stuff came from. It's cool to look at. It's cool to have, you know, and just say, Hey, check this thing out. But yeah, it's completely useless for telling a story of, um, of why it was wherever it was found. And that, that story is completely gone now. So, um, and sometimes with historic stuff, the stories the story's gone several times over because, uh, you know, we find artifact dumps out in the desert that were literally just, you know, grandpa died and they cleared out his garage and he'd been collecting stuff for 50 years or it was just his junk in there. And then they dumped it in the desert. That happens all the time out here in Nevada. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, that stuff's completely unprovenient, but usually we can date, you know, when the person was collecting by what was in there. That's kind of neat. But, um, aside from that, we don't really know anything about them. So, Anyway, um, I think uh, I think let's take a short break real quick because we're we're getting really close to one anyway, and then uh, we'll come back and and uh, just talk about a few more things and and wrap this up so we can get on to episode one. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Okay, we're back. And just to kind of kick off this show a little bit, um, I had an idea to to really talk about what I'm calling perceptions of archaeology around the world, um, because I'm hoping to reach, well, I'm hoping to reach a worldwide audience with this show. Um, you know, I don't want to cover just US-based, you know, archaeology topics and things like that. Um, something I forgot to mention in the earlier show, one of the, one of my early ideas for a show like this was to basically just, it was super boring, I think, but, um, was to basically just go through like American antiquity or whatever journal, you know, I choose that month and then start, you know, read those articles and then bring somebody in to talk about that concept. While we still might do a little bit of that, obviously, and bring in some, some recent journal articles in. Again, I want this to be a worldwide thing, you know, and talk about stuff from, uh, you know, Scotland and China and and, and, uh, Australia and and whatever. So uh, keeping that in mind, last year, um, my wife and I went to Scotland for the uh, European Association of Archaeology meetings uh, about a year ago now. 
And then this year, we got to go to Italy for, I guess, about three and a half weeks and just work on something I was working on over there. And uh, But we basically got to live in this in this small town called Montesarchio, um, which is about an hour drive um, east of Naples, kind of up in the mountains there a little bit. And uh, I just... That experience in Scotland and then other places that I've been, uh, you know, when I was in the Navy and, and got to travel around the Mediterranean and, and then I lived in Jersey in the Channel Islands for about three months, uh, something like 10 years ago. And just looking at all that sort of old world archaeology um, and the way people look at it is is kind of fascinating to me. You know, we will we'll fight tooth and nail to put a building that was built in the 70s on, on some sort of national historic, uh, you know, Pres- uh, register of, of places or something like that, or we'll preserve it in some way because it's important to somebody, right? Now, I'm not saying that's bad, but it's just the the idea that that's that wouldn't even be a thing over in you know most old world countries because it's not you know several hundred years old yet. Um, I remember hearing that when I was in Jersey in the Channel Islands, there was a, a huge fort, and they were it takes up a lot of space on this small island <laughs> in this in this town, and. There was talk then of let's just mow it down. It was only built in the 1700s. You know who cares about it, kind of thing. There's a there's a 3,000 year old castle right over there across the street from it. So you know who cares about this old fort thing that was put up in the 1700s, and and that's kind of the attitude. Uh, you know to bring this back to Italy, the town that we were in had up on the hill that was kind of the focal point for the town. There was an old um, castle that I have a feeling was probably bigger at one point, but. It really was just kind of a huge round turret, like a really big one with kind of a, some some extra buildings attached to it. And from what I understand, this was at least 800 years old. Um, and so, you know, over here in the United States, if we had anything of that sort of structure that was 800 years old, it would be a national park. There would be, you know, ropes around it. There would be uh, national park uh, uh, park rangers there and making sure that you don't go up to it and do different things to it. But, uh, I mean, this thing had no... No fences around it, no nothing. I walked up to it almost every morning, um, just as part of a, a morning walk kind of thing before work, and you know you could just go right up to it. I could lean on it, I could I could spray paint on it probably if I wanted to, and nobody even noticed for a while. Luckily, nobody does that, which is also crazy to me. Um, you know, kids will spray paint anything, but they apparently tend to either stay away from that or they clean it up really well. Um, but yeah, it's just a. Uh, there's no fences and you go right in front of that little you go right in front of that little turret and there's a big cross because Italy and uh, it's again a kind of a focal point for the town and then it's just a sheer drop off of this cliff um, you know down into the basically down into town if you were to fall all the way and uh, again no no protective fences there's a sign that says hey don't be an idiot and fall off this cliff but uh, you know there's no there's there's nothing um and it's not that they don't care about archaeology it's just that it's such a pervasive daily part of their lives to live in sort of a historic area you know all the all the buildings in town are you know not all of them but most of the buildings like in downtown and like the old part of town are all really old you know they're all right next to each other and they're all really old and they're just um you know people actually live in these things and uh it's just how they it's just how they they see things. So, April, what are your experiences across the world? You know, with with experiencing other people's archaeology. Well, I think I've noticed. So, I've done work in uh, Turkey and lived in London for a while as a kid and a high schooler, and just my fam and traveled a bunch in the Middle East uh, with my family. And I think it really does come down to the fact that here in the states, 
we don't see archaeology in the same way. We go to it. It's a focal point. It's a place. History is something you visit or you do. You're not surrounded by it. But when you travel to a lot of other countries, they're sort of surrounded by their history and their cultural history. And it's archaeology and history just, they're always there. They're always present. And so you may not notice them and you may not focus on them in quite the way we do, but you see it all the time and you understand it a little bit more. And a lot of countries also have very different laws than we do, where if it's on our land, I own it. It is mine. It's in my yard. But in many countries, if it's in your yard, it doesn't matter. It's still everybody's history. It's still everybody's archaeology. And so I think that also changes the dialogue a little bit, um, where if you have a ton of it, you don't need to worry about all of it because, you know, it's sort of all pervasive. But it's just always there. So you have mm -hmm. sort of an ingrained appreciation and understanding of it that I think often we lack, where if you ask a lot of people the history of the communities they live in or about, you know, groups who might have lived in this area before them, they often don't know. It's not something we learn about in school. We don't talk about it. It's not as visual. Um, and so I think we kind of forget. But other countries, you walk there and it's, it's so obvious, the antiquity, <laughs> the history. You're just like, oh, my God, right. what am I doing? How can I how can I be sleeping in this hotel that's 400 <laughs> years old? Um, because we're just not, I mean, as Americans, we don't have that opportunity in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. So I think it creates kind of an interesting conundrum for us where we have to figure out how to make people see the history and the antiquity and the archaeology that's kind of also always surrounding us, but may not be as physically tangible because we don't have giant thousand-year-old castles. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I don't know. It really is interesting watching other countries. I wonder too if it has a little bit to do with the economy around archaeology in some places. Like, you know, when you go to some places like Turkey, a huge part of their tourist industry is based on the fact that they have these ancient and famous places mm -hmm. or Italy. People go there because they want to visit Pompeii. They want to see and touch the antiquity of these places. And I think we don't necessarily have that same draw i mean there's a little bit of it with the national parks and some of our archaeological and historical sites but when you think of the united states i'm not sure that that's something that immediately keys to your mind mm -hmm. but when you think of a lot of other countries at least for us that's one of the things that we cue with is like oh england oh that's you know history and this and that um and so that's how we connect with these other countries so i don't know pompeii is a good example because it's like it's like one of the most uh, well-known, if not recognizable, archaeological sites on the planet, right? Like, everybody's heard of Pompeii. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and I was just there a few weeks ago, and we did we did one of the guided tours because um, my wife had never been there before. I'd been there actually almost exactly 20 years before that, uh, the first time. And... But, you know, she'd never been there, so it's it's nice the first time you go to actually do a guided tour because they show you the hot spots. They show you all the, you know, the big stuff, and they give you a really good history. And, and um, But you can just buy a ticket and walk in, which is kind of fascinating to me. You can just yeah. buy a ticket and walk around Pompeii, around the streets, and it's like you're in a, you know, you're in a 2,000-year-old city. And uh, it's kind of like they just took off and left the gates open, and here you go, walk around. And um, they have some places that are blocked off because they're being—they're um, not safe. You know, they're being restored, or um, you know, they're actively um, excavating, or they're doing something to that area, which makes sense to block that off. But for the most part, you've got an entire city to yourself that you can just walk around, um, and that's kind of—that's kind of fascinating to me. I mean, there's 
there's areas at like Yellowstone and, and Yosemite that you can't you can't just walk around. They've got them fenced off, <laughs> you know. Um, Old Faithful at Yellowstone, you you can't just walk up to that thing. They've actually got ropes around it because people would actually walk up to it and get their face burned off when the thing went off. And um, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I'll say I actually had this conversation at the Grand Canyon. Um, I took my in-laws up there mm-hmm. and they were really concerned that the Grand Canyon wasn't fenced off. (laughs) Why is there not a fence around the Grand Canyon? People can fall in. Nice. And my response was basically, if you fall into the Grand Canyon, you knew it was there. (laughs) Yeah. You can see the Grand Canyon. So, I mean, accidents happen, but I don't think that people are going to be surprised by all of a sudden the appearance of a giant chasm. (laughs) Um, And I think for us, at least, or in the States, it comes and also if you go to a lot of the archaeological sites, especially in the Southwest, they are really fenced off because of the high levels of visitation to them mm-hmm. and the potential for kind of that repeat visitation damage. Right. Um, and I I think it comes down to two things. One is kind of um, the over almost the over legislation and legalization of some of these things where we get really worried. Oh, people are going to fall. They're going to trip. They're going to sue. Um, just I don't know. There's sort of a weird carelessness mm-hmm. that Americans engage in. I think sometimes and alter us actually at some of these monuments. But I think we're somehow as a culture much more concerned about it mm-hmm. and keeping people safe. And then it becomes a thing. Like if everything's fenced off to warn you that there's danger, then you need the fences to tell you that there's danger. Yeah, that that kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Chaco Canyon, which is shockingly unfenced. Um, you know, you can walk around just about anywhere in Chaco Canyon, especially some of the um, some of the farther out hikes, like, uh, you know, the, uh, uh what was that? Uh, Pinasco Blanco. I think I'm probably butchering the Spanish on that, but, um, it's like an eight mile hike round trip to go all the way to the end of the Canyon. You go up, you actually go past the supernova pictograph. If anybody's ever heard of that, um, when you're climbing up to this thing and, uh, which I didn't even know was out there. That was just a fun little surprise when we found that I was like, Holy crap, it's the supernova pictograph. Cause I'd heard of that like independently. And, uh, but anyway, you get up there and you can just walk around this old, you know, uh, this Pueblo. And, um, I think everything out there dates from, what is it like the 800s to 1200s, give or take. And, um, so, you know, thousand year old, uh, thousand year old Pueblo and, and you can just walk around it and you really could pick up anything you wanted. Um, they, they kind of leave it up to the person to not do that. But then again, at Chaco Canyon, you're kind of inundated because that Anasazi black on white pottery, is literally everywhere. That crunching sound you hear beneath your feet is just pottery. <laughs> so it's like literally all over the place. And I think it's a little much for people. And they're like, oh, they, why pick it up? Because there's a billion of them. But if you see one of them, you're more inclined to pick that up. Um, but uh, anyway, this kind of brings up, because you, um, you mentioned England. And I know I'm reasonably certain of this, that you know, if you dig in England, pretty much everything below the ground surface, uh, no matter whose property it is, is owned by the crown. It's, uh, you know, you dig it up, it's actually owned by the crown right, right off the bat. Um, and then you figure out what to do with it. Um, which brings up, uh, a discussion we had on the CRM archaeology podcast a couple episodes back about the effigy mounds in Wisconsin, that there's currently legislation. Um, basically these effigy mounds, it doesn't take much to get something nominated as an effigy mound. And once it's on the Wisconsin historical society's, um, list, 
then if it's on your land, you can't do anything to it. You get tax breaks, and but you can't touch it. You have to berm around it if you're going to do something. And and there's people trying to fight that. They basically they basically want to say, listen, we want to excavate these mounts because if there's no human remains, then it shouldn't be on the list, and we don't want it to be a thing. And uh, and again, that um, that made me ask a, a question during that podcast that we never really addressed, but. You know, in this country, when you buy property or you buy a house or something like that, um, it's pretty well understood in most areas of the country that unless it's specifically listed in the property agreement, you're not buying the mineral rights. You're not buying the water rights in a lot of cases, if there are water rights in that area. So why do we just assume that we get the cultural rights to everything under the ground? Um, Because that's the way it is. If you have private land... In most areas of the country, and it's not this weird effigy mound thing, but if, in most areas of the country, if you have private land and you find something on that land, it's essentially, quote unquote, yours to do with as you please. Um, you know, if we ever do a CRM arc project that's on private land, those artifacts and those records and all that stuff go back to the landowner if they want it. If they don't, then it goes to the Nevada State Museum here in Nevada. But um, the landowner has first crack at it because it's their land. But you know, if somebody discovered oil on their land, that wouldn't necessarily be theirs unless they owned the mineral rights. So I don't know why we don't even have a discussion about cultural rights for, for things under the ground, but but we simply don't. So it's an interesting problem. I don't know. I wonder if it partly has to has to do to a certain extent with ideas of whose culture it is. Mm-hmm. So if you're in England and you're walking along the Thames, the things and you the things you're picking up are this weird mixture of, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Norman, Mm -hmm. uh, Roman. So there's been this broad-based kind of Anglo-European culture there for so long that sort of the remains are all connected to the people who are actively, many of the people who are actively living there now. Mm -hmm. But here we have, a, I think we've, we've built in ourselves a cognitive disconnect to some degree maybe that comes out in some of this early legislation where the cultures that lived in the United States before kind of Anglo colonization are not our cultures, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it doesn't have that same meaning. It doesn't belong to everyone because it belongs to these groups, you know, the native American groups that we kind of stigmatize and we pushed off to the side for so long and it's their culture. It's not our culture. Right. Uh, it's not our history. It's not a shared thing in the same way, even though, you know, in many ways it should be um, potentially. I don't know. And I think that might be part of it is that when people were originally thinking about this in other countries, it was this idea that this is all of our history. It's mm. all of our archaeology. It's all of our past. It's a shared past. And I think in the United States, we haven't necessarily embraced that idea in the same way. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, it's It seems... I guess it seems a little weird to us because a lot of countries don't simply don't have um, a, a recent, a more recent connection. Like we have, you know, Native American groups that are actively concerned with stuff that's, you know, several thousand years old in a land because they can trace their own history back that far in that area. So everything there is sacred to them. You know, they're an extant population that says, um, you know. Our, our ancestors were either buried here or they left this thing here and that has spiritual significance to us. But there's no Romans in England wandering around going, that was my ancestors 1,500 years ago that dropped that, you know, Roman hoard of coins. Give it back. You know, that <laughs> we just it just doesn't happen. 
Well, um, I think it goes beyond that, where a lot of the people now living in England would say, well, I'm in some ways connected to these Romans. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I'm, I'm English and my family's been here for blah, 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 generations. And so, but for most Americans, yeah, we don't have that or we don't talk about the history in that way. It's not a history of the continent. Um, mm-hmm. It's like we create cultural divides even within how we approach and understand the archaeology and the history of our continent. Yeah, and it's a... Uh... You know, the simple fact is, if your skin tone in the United States is anything resembling white, you're not from here. You know, I don't care how long your family's been here, <laughs> but you're not from here. <laughs> so, you know, we, we talk about, oh, who are true Americans? You know, you're not a true American just because you drive a truck and have an American flag tattooed on your back. You know, that's Whoa. not, <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, it, it's, uh, I mean, the only, if you really want to get down to it, the only true Americans are the Native Americans who have been here for 10,000 years. But then that goes back to, you know, who is, you know, what is, what does that even mean? What is that concept? It's really more of a philosophical thing because there are, there are Native American groups that if we, if we could accurately trace their lineage, probably come back to the first groups that came across the, you know, the Bering Land Bridge or the, you know, floated over from uh, the Pacific Islands or whatever they did, um, you know, we could trace back that far. But then my guess is there were subsequent migrations. Um, you know, there had to have been, right? So there could have been another migration of people that came in 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, something like that. And, you know, they've been here 4,000 years, but are they true Americans? You know, who even cares about that question really, really comes down to it. <laughs> it's so absurd when you really start to piece it together. Um, but, uh, yeah, and hearing, hearing, you know, being in another country and hearing other people talk about, you know, America and, and all the, especially with all the crazy political stuff going on and all the, you know, all the different patriotism that comes out during an election season, they're just, they're just floored by it, you know. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. It doesn't help that when we were in um, Germany for just a day on our, on our way to Italy, that we turned on the TV in this Airbnb we were on, and, and I saw on the channel guide, American News, and I flipped to the American News just to see what that was, and it was just Fox News ported into Germany without any translation or anything, just straight up Fox News. Not Fox News like international or world, just Fox News. And I was like, this is American News to Germans. That's why they hate us. So, And, and by translation, do you mean like a commentary that explains the cultural background behind why Fox <laughs> News is saying what they're saying? Or... I would have been happy with just like subtitles going, um, this isn't representational of all Americans, but just this one crazy woman right here and or this crazy guy or something like that. Yeah. No, there was nothing. So, yeah, I mean, they had BBC and things like that, but there were no, at least on that network, you know, that one little small segment we were looking at, there was no other source of, of, you know, quote unquote, American news other than other than Fox News. So, yeah, I, I hope that's not the same around the world. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's, we're pretty much done with this segment and I think we're just gonna, um, we're gonna end this podcast, um, because this was our, like I said, our episode zero and I think we've laid the groundwork and, uh, keep listening because like I said, hopefully when you downloaded this episode one also downloaded, so you can just roll right into that. And, uh, you know, in our episode one, we'll talk about, uh, some future ideas that we have. And like I said, too, um, there's a contact form on the website on Archaeology Podcast Network website. So you can go to www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology to find the show page for this show. 
And over on the right side there, there's a contact button. So if you click that, you can send us ideas for um, interviews or things you want to hear about on the show, something, you know, you maybe heard in the news, um, you know, maybe give us a reference to so we can go look up an article or something like that. And we'll try to get somebody on the show that uh, is related to that and talk to them about it. So, all right, April, any other uh, any other thoughts on this new this new endeavor? Uh, well, hopefully we'll keep it interesting and, uh, you know, try not to delve too deeply into philosophical issues all the time. Um <laughs> I think one of the things we want to do is have some fun looking at things like literature and movies that mm-hmm. relate to archaeology, um, which should be kind of interesting and engaging, both for us because then you know we get to read the books or watch the movies, but then we get to talk about them. So. Nice, nice. All right, well, that's it. Stay tuned for episode one, and we'll see you guys next time. listening to the archaeology podcast we hope you enjoyed it you can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn send us show suggestions and follow archpodnet on twitter and instagram this show was produced by the archaeology podcast network Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Go check it out. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www dot archaeology podcast network dot com contact us at chris at archaeology podcast network dot com thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the archaeology podcast network if you want these shows to keep going consider becoming a member for just 7.99 us dollars a month that's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte go to archpodnet.com slash members for more shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business like that let's put it online and see what happens stage and the site is live that we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage thanks you're all set that count it up and ship it around the globe stage this one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.